You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are nearing the end of our study of 1 Timothy and our series called Gospel Culture in God's Household. I anticipate, unless anything unexpected happens between now and next Sunday, that we'll be closing our uh, series next Sunday. The Apostle Paul in this text is about to give Timothy some final instructions and warnings regarding his calling as a pastor. And as we will see, he actually doesn't say anything new. Instead, he chooses to re-say what he has already said. He chooses to once again emphasize the necessity of the central themes of this letter, which is to watch his life and to watch his doctrine. That is, in fact, a summary of the entire Christian life. It is about living like Christ, and it is about following Christ's teaching. Or to follow Paul's language in this letter, it is about growing in godliness and it is about guarding the faith. It is about orthodoxy, sound doctrine, and orthopraxy, sound living. Those are the twin pillars of the Christian life. And they are meant to be experienced and guarded within the, the, the joint experience of living together in the local church. And that is why we have been talking so much about gospel culture. We're trying to figure out what it looks like for the gospel to not only transform lives, but to transform a community. We aren't just meant to be individual Christians who are praying by themselves, reading the Bible by themselves, evangelizing by themselves, but but doing all those things together, reading together, praying together, evangelizing together. The gospel changes the way that we live together. You may recall in the very first sermon in this series, a quotation that I included from Ray Ortland. And this quotation has profoundly shaped our vision for the church, what we are aiming to accomplish, and what we are aiming to become here at Sovereign Grace. This is what Ray Ortland said. He said, when the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. And so we at Sovereign Grace, aiming to be a powerful church by the Spirit to the glory of God, we want to have clear doctrine and a beautiful culture. That is why we need to watch our doctrine and watch our lives. So I will begin reading our text today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, 
and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The title of this sermon is The Christian's Call to Flee and Fight. The Christian's Call to Flee and Fight. We're going to break up our text today into three points. First, the commandment, verses 11 to 12. Second, the charge, verses 13 to 15a. And third, the king of kings, the verse 15b to 16. Our first point, the commandment. Now, you remember in our last sermon in this series, what Paul talked about at the beginning of chapter 6. Paul was warning Timothy of the dangers of worldliness. The desire to be rich and the love of money had led some to fall into temptation and into a snare of the devil. Some professing believers had even wandered away from the faith because of their love of money. The problem for Timothy was that there were influential people in the church, people who, who presented themselves to be teachers within the church. They were giving way to the same temptation. And as a result, they no longer cared about truth. They only cared about saying and teaching what brought attention to themselves. But Timothy, Timothy had to be different. He, he couldn't fight fire with fire by, by looking for new ideas of his own new innovative strategies to attract his own following. Instead, Paul says that he was to flee. Verse 11 says, but, but as for you, O men of God, flee these things. Timothy was not to, to, to look at the sins of others and see what he could salvage from their corrupted practices. He was, he was not to back away slowly. He was to run away from these temptations like a man who was escaping from danger grave and mortal danger. He was to look at what these false teachers were doing and he was to run in the opposite direction. He was to be like Joseph when he was being tempted by Potiphar's wife. Joseph, he didn't talk to her. He wasn't concerned about maintaining a good relationship with her, being nice to her. He, he didn't try to persuade her that this wasn't a good idea. He just, he just ran. He just ran away. He didn't trust himself to rise above the seductive force of her temptations. Instead, he ran. He ran out of her presence. He ran out of her house, not even pausing to retrieve the garment that he left in her hands. Joseph ran like a man whose life was in danger because in a very real way it was. I mean, sin, when, when we give in to sin, when we give in to the things that tempt us to, to sin against God and others, when we sin, we're not just making ourselves feel bad. We're not just diminishing our spiritual vitality. Sin kills the soul. Sin separates us from God. Sin hardens the heart to the point that the things that you once believed, the things that you once said matter to you, no longer 
matter at all. If Christ means anything to us, then we must flee. We must flee from sin. We must flee like Joseph fled. We, we will flee from whatever tempts us to sin, and we will flee from whatever leads us to sin against God because it was that sin, it was those actions that led Jesus to the cross. It was our sin that made our Savior suffer and die and be abandoned by his Father. Those who love Christ and believe the gospel must flee from sin and temptation. But Paul says that that's not all we must do. We must not only run from sin, we must also run to righteousness. Verse 11 says that we are to pursue, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, if you've read throughout the New Testament, you'll know that in many of Paul's letters, he includes what you could call these virtue lists, these lists of Christian virtues that are meant to give you a snapshot of what the Christian life is meant to look like. These lists capture the moral character of the Christian life. Now, none of these lists are exhaustive. They are meant to be read together as we compare what it is that mattered to Paul and to the apostles and to the early church. Uh, but each of them gives us a sampling of the kinds of qualities that we as Christians are meant to pursue. Now, the word pursue here in verse 11 means to follow in haste, to, to run after, or to aggressively chase after. It's actually the same word used in other parts of the New Testament for persecution. When, when Jesus talks about believers anticipating that we, they will be persecuted for their faith, he uses the same word here as pursue. Imagine, imagine Paul himself before his conversion, pursuing the early believers, first in Jerusalem, and then getting letters from the chief priests so that he could go to Damascus and bring Christian men and women and throw them into prison. That, that is the picture we are meant to have as we chase after righteousness. We are to pursue these virtues with the same zeal and passion and relentlessness as one who is on the hunt. We are to flee from sin and we are to pursue righteousness because if we don't, we, we're not going to get anywhere in the Christian life. I mean, the Christian life is not just a, a matter of retreating, of running away again and again, of being afraid of temptations and sins and just running from one to the next. The Christian life is one of pursuit. It's not just about becoming less and less sinful. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. Philip Ryken reminds us of the dangers of missing this when he writes, if all we do is run away from one sin, we will run right into the arms of another. And so we must pursue righteousness. Righteousness, what is that? Well, righteousness means simply doing what is right before the Lord, doing what is right as determined by God's standards. It is doing what is right, and it is loving what is right. It doesn't matter if you're in public or in private, whether no one is watching you or whether you're surrounded by a crowd of people. You always strive to do what is right and for the right reasons. Paul then says we are to pursue godliness, as we have seen in this letter, this is one of Paul's favorite words for Timothy to pursue and for 
the Christian, uh, Christians in the church in Ephesus to desire and pray for. Back in chapter 2, when he was talking about praying for those who are all in, in positions of authority, he said we are to live peaceful and godly lives. Then in chapter 3, he said we are to train ourselves for godliness because godliness has value not only for this life but also for the life to come. And then in chapter 5, uh, he told us to treasure godliness. Sorry, chapter 6. He told us to treasure godliness knowing that godliness with contentment is great gain. And here Paul tells Timothy and he tells us to pursue godliness, to chase after it with relentless commitment. Next he says we are to pursue faith and love. Faith and love, a common couplet in Paul's writings. Two qualities that we are so familiar with that we can easily take them for granted. We, we either think that we have them, we already have them, we talk about them all the time. Yeah, of course I have faith and love. Of course I have those basic fundamental Christian qualities. We either assume that we have them or we just assume that we, they will magically form in our hearts. But Paul says here that we are to pursue them. We are to chase after faith. We are to pursue love. We are to fight for faith when we are struggling to believe in God's promises. And we are to pursue love when we are are tempted to live selfishly for ourselves. We are to pursue faith and love. Next on the list is steadfastness. We are to pursue steadfastness We are to chase after the kind of character that makes us steadfast people. People who aren't easily shaken. People who don't give up on their convictions. People who keep walking on the straight and narrow path of following Christ and aren't distracted to go to the left or to the right. We are to pursue steadfastness. And I think many of us know what the Bible teaches about what produces steadfastness. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness comes from our trials. It comes from the testing of our faith. And that doesn't mean that we chase after suffering, but it does mean that we can rejoice in our suffering knowing that it's producing steadfastness. And steadfastness is what we will... We, we need and what will enable us to keep going to the very end and to not give up. The last quality on this list is gentleness. Gentleness. You might be surprised to find this quality on the list. I mean, what is gentleness compared to faith and love? What is gentleness compared to godliness and steadfastness and righteousness? Well, gentleness isn't valued very much these days, is it? But it is, in fact, a crucial quality for the Christian. Jesus himself described himself as the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. So if our desire as followers of Christ is to become more like Christ, then we will become gentle like our Savior and Lord who was gentle and lowly in heart. That doesn't mean that we become weak. It's not about, you know, not standing for anything. There's a difference between meekness and Weakness, But gentleness does mean that we become the kinds of people who are slow to anger. The kinds of people who are 
tender in our affections, the kinds of people who are welcoming to the weak and forgiving towards our enemies. My friends, these are the qualities that we are meant to pursue. And these are the qualities that we have all failed to practice. No one is righteous all the time. No one is godly all the time, walking by faith, loving all the time. No one is steadfast all the time. No one is gentle all the time. When we look at the virtue lists in Scripture, we are meant on the one hand to say that that is our aim. That is what we are going for. But we are also meant to be reminded how, fall, how, how far we have fallen from that standard. We have fallen short of this standard. In fact, you could say that, that rather than fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness, we have fled from righteousness and pursued sin. That, that is how twisted and corrupted our hearts are that we do the exact opposite of what would lead us to glorify God and lead to a joyful life in Christ. Only one man embodied these qualities perfectly. Only one man lived this way throughout his entire life. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was godly. Jesus walked by faith, trusting in the Father. Jesus loved those around him. Jesus was steadfast, till the end, even enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus was gentle, even towards his enemies. He taught his followers to pray for those who persecute them, to bless those who curse them, to love those who hate them. And then Jesus went and showed us how it was done. As he hung on that cross, and he was surrounded by his persecutors, those who hated him, scorned him, and mocked him, he cried out, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus embodied every single one of these qualities so that all who trust in him, all who are united to him by faith, could have these qualities as well. He died for our failures to live like this, but he also died so that we wouldn't have to fail anymore. Those who have life in Jesus can have life like Jesus as well. Now that is verse 11. Verse 11 is all about watching our lives. But now in verse 12, Paul tells Timothy to watch his doctrine. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. The faith was one of Paul's short forms for Christian doctrine. The Christian faith. We are to walk by faith and we are to believe in the faith. Indeed, we are to fight for the faith. The word for fight here means to struggle for or to contend for a prize. We are to strive after. We are to labor for. We are to give our lives to the cause of preserving sound Christian doctrine, which finds its culmination in the gospel. You know, there aren't that many things worth fighting for in this life. But this is surely one of them. We must be willing to give our lives for the truths of the Christian faith because salvation is found in no one else and nowhere else. Everlasting life, fullness of joy, forgiveness of sins are found exclusively in the Christian faith. 
And so if we are to take hold of these things, if we are to offer them to a world full of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and lost and alienated from God, we must fight the good fight of the faith. That seems to be why Paul exhorts Timothy in the rest of verse 12 to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul seems to be alluding to a time, likely at Timothy's conversion or baptism, when he made a public profession of faith in the presence of many witnesses. They, they listened to him as he declared his faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior and declared that salvation is found in his name alone. And now Paul is saying he must continue to make that confession. He must take hold of the eternal life that is already his by the free gift of God by continuing to confess that Christ is Lord and Savior. That is how he is to stand firm in the Christian faith and take hold of eternal life. Well, that is the commandment. That is what Paul has commanded Timothy to do. And as we read these words as believers in Christ, this command is for us to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness. But now Paul gives Timothy a sacred charge, which leads to our second point. In verse 13, Paul begins with, I charge you, I charge you, not, not with an offense like a prosecutor would charge a defendant, but I I, I order you, I command you, I announce that this needs to be done. And Paul emphasizes the sanctity of this charge by, by adding that this is made in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy and he's telling us that this isn't just a matter of good advice. This isn't just a matter of an older pastor giving some practical tips to a younger pastor. This is an authoritative instruction. And it is one that is issued with the full backing of God himself. God the Father and God the Son are standing behind Paul's words and watching as witnesses to Timothy's faithfulness. Nothing could press home the weightiness of this charge more than that. But these, as we see, are no ordinary witnesses. Paul says that God is the one who gives life to all things. God isn't standing back as a passive observer, waiting for the moment when Timothy stumbles and falls so that he can mock him and condemn him. No, God is there supplying exactly what Timothy needs to persevere. Timothy is called to take hold of eternal life. And as he is called to do that, God is supplying to him the life that he needs. He will give him the life that he needs to take hold of the eternal life to come. He also reminds him that Jesus, Christ Jesus, made the good confession himself. Just as Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, Jesus Christ made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. As Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you, you have said so. And my, my kingdom is not of this world, but, 
but it is of a, another world where my servants wait to, to deliver me and, and to, to free me from this persecution. He revealed even that Pilate's authority derived from his heavenly father. In other words, G- Jesus isn't calling Timothy to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Jesus himself made the good confession before the governor of that region that he is Lord. And that confession cost him his life. Now Timothy must be willing to do the same. Now that is, that is the backdrop of the charge. That, that, that brings home the weightiness and the sobering effect of this charge to come. Now what is the charge? Well, verse 14 puts it plainly. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul charges him. Paul orders him. Paul commands him to keep the commandment. In other words, what Paul had just commanded in verses 11 and 12, he now charges him in the presence of God the Father and God the Son to keep This commandment to flee from sin, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This commandment to fight the good fight of the faith and to take hold of eternal life. This commandment must remain unstained and free from reproach. And it will if Timothy obeys it. But if he doesn't, he will make the commandment look foolish and futile. Timothy is to keep the commandment, and that not just when he feels like it, not just when he is feeling spiritually strong, not just during work hours, but he is to keep the commandment until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy will not be free of this commandment until he either dies or Christ returns. And that is a day that no one knows, which is why Paul adds that it is a day when God will display the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ at the proper time in verse 15. Timothy isn't to speculate as to when Jesus will return. He isn't to put a timeline on his obedience to this commandment and just wonder, well, is this commandment ever going to be lifted from me? He is to put his head down Take one step at a time and keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the day that Christ returns. Now this leads to our last two verses and our final point. Now when it comes to obeying God's commands, it is very easy for us to lose sight of God and to fixate on ourselves. We, we either focus on our failures to keep God's commands or we are puffed up with pride because we think that we have obeyed them. But here, Paul gives Timothy some perspective. He reminds him to lift up the eyes of his heart and to gaze into the unseen realms of heaven so that he might remember who it is that he serves, who it is that has issued this commandment. And he helps him to do that by providing this glorious description of God. Verse 15 says that he is the blessed and only sovereign. To be blessed is to be happy. Not not with a superficial cheeriness, 
but with a deep abiding joy that, that never can be taken away, that never dissipates. That is what it means to be blessed. And then to be sovereign is to reign as the king, to have all authority, to do your will. And so this, this God is the blessed sovereign. He is the happy king, the one who rules over all and the one from whom all blessings flow. He is also the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who stands above all authority, the one who reigns over all the actions of the earthly kings and presidents and authorities and governments. He, he reigns as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one, Paul says, who alone has immortality, He alone has immortality. Early in verse 13, he says that God is the one who gives life to all things. All things derive their life from him because he alone has life in himself. He doesn't receive his life from another person or from another source. He is the fountain of all life. And that is why he alone has immortality. He has always been and he always will be. Lastly, he is the God who dwells in unapproachable light, one one whom no one has ever seen or can see. This reflects and captures the, the imagery of Mount Sinai. When Israel was forbidden to approach the mountain of God, lest they die, as God shone the glory of his might and magnificence on the top of that mountain, they, they could not approach on pain of death. And even Moses, when he was invited to stand in the presence of God, he was told, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Even when Moses pleaded with him, Lord, please show me your glory, the Lord still covered him with his hand as his glory passed by and as he proclaimed his name. Well, that God... That God who dwelt in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see and live, that God is Timothy's God. That that God is our God. This is the God who has issued us this commandment. It's the God of Moses, the God of Sinai, the God of Israel. He is our God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. It is to this God that Paul ascribes honor and eternal dominion in verse 16. This God and this God alone deserves to be worshipped and obeyed forever and ever in the happy reign of his eternal dominion. My friends, just like Timothy, we must keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach because this is the God whom we serve. This is the God whom we worship. The God who is the blessed and only sovereign, who dwells in unapproachable light, whose purity is beyond our comprehension and perception. This God has commanded us to flee from sin, to fight for the faith, to pursue righteousness, and take hold of eternal life. And this is the God who will one day appear in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and bring everything that was done in secret, everything that was done in the darkness to light. And so we must flee from sin. What a timely commandment for us to remember in a week when a public Christian leader was revealed as being one who did not flee from sin, but as one who gave in, who talked to sin, who pursued sin to the embarrassment of the entire Christian community. He did not flee. And when we look, by the way, at an example of a man like that, and we are tempted to think, well, he, is, he was a fraud. He should have done this. He should have had that in place. He, he should have been like this. Our primary reflection, though we want to learn from his failings, our primary reflection should be, that could be me. That will be me if I do not flee from sin, if I do not grasp the mortal danger that sin poses to my soul. We must flee from sin. And that is not a category that many of us have. We talk much about the forgiveness of sins, but we do not talk nearly enough about fleeing from sin. After all, we think, won't God just forgive us? aren't, Aren't God's mercies inexhaustible? Why can't we just sin and have them all washed away by the cleansing flow of the blood of Christ? Well, that is dangerous reasoning. In fact, the Bible teaches that it is soul-condemning reasoning. Because as Paul says in in Romans chapter 6, how can we who die to sin still live in it? We have died to sin in Christ if you truly belong to him. And so you will not live in it anymore. Instead, you will flee from it. The, the last thing on your mind is to dive back into the sinful past that Christ has freed you from. If you truly belong to Christ, you will not presume on the forgiveness of God. Instead, you will devote yourself to putting your sin to death by the power of the Spirit. Because nothing, nothing disgusts the believer more than the sin that sent our Savior to the cross. Jesus died and suffered not only for our sins, but because of our sins. Perhaps we don't flee from sin because we think it's pointless. Well, we think, well, and I've heard this several times, in my pastoral experience, we think, well, it's really just a matter of the heart, right? I mean, what's, what's the point of fleeing from sin? You know, taking actions to set up boundaries and put up measures to keep us from giving in to, to temptation and sin. What's the point when my heart is unchanged and I'm just going to find another way to get into the sin? It's just a matter of the heart, right? Don't, don't I just need heart transformation first? Well, that has the appearance of wisdom, but it is utterly false. The Bible calls us to flee from sin now, not when we feel like it, not when our heart is in the right place, 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Jesus used the radical imagery of spiritual surgery, cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. That cause us to sin because continuing to sin is so dangerous. We must flee our sin because we must recognize that it is not just our hearts that affect our actions. It is our actions that affect our hearts. Our actions are not just the result of our heart's inclinations. Our heart's inclinations are shaped and defined by our actions. One of the examples that I've often thought about in the scriptures is from Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven instead. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is talking in the language of action. Don't, don't do this. Do this instead. Because if you do this instead, your heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if you store up treasures here on earth, then your heart will be here on earth. Your heart will follow your actions. And that that is why Jesus doesn't just say, well, wait for your heart to change. Okay, just, just wait for that moment when you feel it, when you really feel it. And when you're authentic about it and you're sincere, then, then lay up treasures in heaven. No, he says, he says lay, stop laying up treasures on earth and start laying up treasures in heaven because if you do, your heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now listen, sin does have, as, at its root, it has what is going on in our hearts. We love the wrong things. We treasure the wrong things. And, and out of that, we do the wrong things. That, that is true. But we must never use that as an excuse to keep sinning. We need to stop making excuses about our sin. And we need to start taking action. We can get, go, we can get so caught up in, I think this is one of the, the over-exaggerations of the gospel-centered movement. We can get so caught up into probing our sin, analyzing our sin, identifying the root of our sin, when we stop doing the one thing that verse 11 tells us to do, to flee from our sin, to run away from it. If you do that, then your heart will follow. Your heart will follow because that's what Christ has promised to change. He has promised to change our hearts. But we must heed the commandment. We must flee from sin and pursue Righteousness. Christ has come to free us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. But so long as we are stroking our sin, so long as we are petting it, talking seductively to it, nothing's going to change. And so are there sins that you need to flee from? Are there temptations that need to be cut off? It could be an app on your phone. It could be a show that you watch. It could be a person who you talk to at work. Whatever it is that tempts you to sin, you must flee. There are times where we have to put our niceness aside. 
and we need to run away. And so I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to keep the commandment, the commandment to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, the commandment to fight the good fight of the faith. I command you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the only blessed and sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be glory, honor, and eternal dominion. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the theme of this letter and of this sermon series, Gospel Culture in God's Household, we want to be soberly reminded that that is not possible unless we put sin to death, unless we flee from what tempts us. It is not possible unless we have a relentless, zealous, passionate commitment to righteousness, holiness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Holy Father, we believe that we can live like this because Christ has died that we would no longer be slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. Do what is right, love what is right, for the glory of your name. And so we, we ask, Father, for wisdom and will to flee from sin and temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.